Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is the Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 212, another numerical palindrome. So after all of those special Halloween episodes, it's finally back to normal. Well, more or less. Today on the show, I'm going to talk about a new album from my friends in the horror punk band Voice of Doom. That intro music was actually a track entitled Trilogy of Terror off of their new album Screams in Space. Also, we're going to get back to covering some news stories. We've got a controversial article from the Huff Post entitled Muhammad was a feminist. Yes, you heard me correctly. And also, we've got a story about a politician who wants you to vote against his opponent because she's an outspoken atheist. An outspoken atheist. Oh, the horror. Sarcasm intended. Okay, so as I just mentioned a moment ago, I want to take a minute to plug a new album from my friends in the band Voice of Doom. And no, this isn't a commercial spot. What do you think this is? Skeptoid? Seriously, have you listened to Skeptoid lately with all the Blue Apron commercials and stuff? But anyway, um, I'm just mentioning it because I really like the guys in the band and their music. I actually befriended the guys a while back through the Weekend Out Facebook page. We hit it off rather quickly, probably because we have a lot in common. The guys in Voice of Doom, uh, at least the ones I've been in touch with, are, like myself, skeptics and or atheists who nevertheless have a fascination with dark, weird stuff, the occult, etc. And like myself, they're also old-school Misfits fans, and uh, they make great music in that vein. I hate trying to slap a label on a band because as a musician of sorts myself, um, I'll put musician in quotes referring to myself, uh, using the term loosely, I sing and write lyrics, been doing that since uh, my early teens, and I can mess around enough with a guitar or a keyboard to, uh, you know, express a a song idea to uh, real musicians. But anyway enough talking about myself. Uh, Like I was saying, I don't like slapping labels on musicians because I know how most of us have an aversion to being pigeonholed, but I like to uh, refer to Voice of Doom as horror punk. I I think it's fitting, and I think it sounds really cool, Uh, so hopefully you guys don't mind. But as I said, uh, the new album is called Screams in Space, and the singer and I were talking, and he was telling me how the tracks on the album were inspired by some really interesting topics. They have a song called King Spirit Temple about what they mistook for a satanic church uh, when they were youngins back in the 80s, but supposedly it just turned out to be some kind of Slavic church. But I love the description they gave me. When we peeked inside, we saw red-painted leafless trees with strange ornaments, a diagram of the human anatomy like da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, as well as a mannequin hanging from a tree on the altar. For some reason, I really like that kind of surreal, lurid imagery. They have another song called Elemental, and it's about Jack Parsons, specifically his relationship with a woman named Marjorie Cameron. Now, if you're not familiar, Jack Parsons was a really, shall we say, interesting or colorful guy. I love this description from Wikipedia. John Whiteside, quote-unquote, Jack Parsons, born Marvel Whiteside. If you were born with the first name Marvel, why would you change it? Um, October 2nd, 1914, died uh, June 17th, 1952 was an American rocket engineer and rocket propulsion researcher, chemist, and thalamite occultist. 
Uh, I love that. It's like rocket engineer. Wow. Okay. Impressive. Rocket propulsion researcher. Yeah. Also impressive. Chemist. Okay. Quite the man of science. And then thalamite occultist. I guess why not? If Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project, can be a devout Christian, why can't a rocket engineer be a thalamite occultist? And if you're not familiar with Thelema, it was a religion or philosophy founded by turn-of-the-century occultist Alistair Crowley. A lot of people pronounce it Crawley, but uh, I think it's properly pronounced Crowley. Author Anton Wilson used to talk about this little mnemonic device that uh, Crowley himself supposedly used to repeat. My name is Alistair Crowley because that I am holy, but enemies say Crowley because they seek to treat me foully. Or something like that. Uh, I wonder if my friend Crocoduck is listening. I'm pretty sure he has a very strong disdain for, uh, for Crowley or Crowley. But anyway, Jack Parsons was a disciple or follower of Crowley. I believe he actually had direct contact with him. Uh, so pretty strange, this gifted rocket engineer who would go on to be one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory was an acolyte of a debauched occultist. And if that wasn't strange enough, Parsons became friends with L. Ron Hubbard. Yes, that L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, if you're a longtime listener of the show, then you're probably aware of my disdain for Hubbard and of Scientology in general. But Hubbard got all caught up in Thelema too, and I believe he acted as the scribe for Parsons when he performed the Babylon working uh, ritual. Evilheim, the singer for Voice of Doom, mentioned this to me as well. The Babylon working was a sex magic ritual, which I believe involved Parsons playing with himself while Hubbard took notes. Um, uh, yeah, but I'll rein myself in because I could go on talking about this weird stuff all night. Uh, but to come back around to Voice of Doom, great guys, great music, and I'm going to play a song from their new album in its entirety at the end of the show. So was Muhammad, peas and dressing be upon him, a feminist? And uh, this is an article by Jim Garrison, okay, the president and founder of Ubiquity University, whatever the hell that is. Uh, call me cynical, but this seems like a total clickbait title, but hey, who doesn't want clicks? Now, I'll say up front that I think, in a way, this guy's intentions are good. I think he's trying to get Muslim men in countries where women are being oppressed to treat women better. I think we can all get on board with that, unless you're some kind of evil prick lacking all uh, empathy. And uh, I think he's trying to accomplish that by holding up Muhammad as some shining feminist role model. The obvious problem being that even if here and there Muhammad did have some relatively enlightened or progressive views concerning women, that doesn't cancel out all the backward stuff in the Quran and the Hadith regarding the treatment of women, such as the detailed rules regarding what you're allowed to do to or with your female slaves. Uh, as I said on the show before, in Islam, there was this concept of manumission, the liberating of a slave, which was considered one of the most virtuous acts one could perform. I think it was actually seen as a means for atoning for sin. Despite this, uh, it still seems like there were a lot of people hanging on to their slaves, and there was quite a booming slave trade in the Arab world for quite some time. 
And as I said, it's not like everyone was just setting their slaves free willy-nilly. The Quran has detailed prescriptions regarding the keeping and treatment of slaves, including how female slaves couldn't couldn't be used sexually. Uh, actually, I'll read a couple of verses. This first one doesn't deal with slavery specifically. Uh, this one is more about the treatment of women in general, um, the husband-wife dynamic, I think. But uh, here we go. Men have authority over women by right of what Allah has given one over the other and what they spend for maintenance from their wealth. So righteous women are devoutly obedient regarding in the husband's absence what Allah would have them guard. And I believe that's actually talking about guarding their loins, meaning uh, remaining sexually faithful or whatever. But those wives from whom you fear arrogance, first advise them. Then if they persist, forsake them in bed and finally strike them. But if they obey you once more, seek no means against them. Indeed, Allah is ever exalted and grand. If you fear a breach between them, then appoint an arbiter from his folks and an arbiter from her folks. If they desire reconciliation, God will effect between them. Indeed, God is all-knowing, all-aware. Al-Quran and Nisa, uh, verses 34 through 35. Then this next one is from, I think it's Sahih al-Bukhari, uh, which is from a collection of hadith, I believe. That the prophet married her, and this is in regard to uh, Aisha, or Aisha, the prophet's notoriously young uh, wife, I think was it his third wife. That the prophet married her when she was six years old, and he consummated his marriage when she was nine years old. And then she remained with him for nine years, till his passing, or passing away, rather. And Aisha's age, I think, is still a matter of contention. I think there's apologists who try to say she was at least well into her teens. And I think there's people, Islamic scholars, who try to say that she was probably older, but for political reasons, after the fact, her age was recorded as being younger. At least I think I remember hearing that. Or maybe since it was a political marriage, like most marriages were throughout history, I think. It was about dowries and uh, alliances, etc. Maybe some try to suggest that he married her young, but nothing was consummated till well later. But generally speaking, the consensus, even among many Muslims, seems to be, uh, yeah, around six years old is when uh, he married her and the marriage was consummated around nine or ten. So uh, pretty revolting by our modern standards. And I imagine even by the standards of many ancient cultures, it, it was probably eyebrow-raising, to say the least. I think there's a lot of cultures where people married very young, um, probably in their early teens or whatever. And this probably had something to do with high mortality rates, uh, you know, the, the fact that the average lifespan was shockingly low in comparison to our modern standards, and the, the modern development of the average person being able to live to a relatively ripe old age. I mean, this is well, relatively modern. I'm looking at online chart here, life expectancy at birth and years. For the Paleolithic, it was 33. Uh, Bronze Age, 26. Classical Greece, 28. Uh, let's see, Classical Rome, 20 to 30 years. If a child survived to age 10, life expectancy was an additional 37.5 years. 
So a total average life expectancy of 47.5 years. And for some reason, it looks like the medieval caliphate did pretty good. Uh, average life expectancy from birth of 35 plus years. Average lifespan of Islamic scholars was 59 to 84 and uh, 69 to 75 in Islamic Spain. So say what you want about Islam, but <laughs> they did have that golden period in the uh, Middle Ages. How much of that was built on slavery, conquest, etc., uh, I don't know. I'm not an Islamic scholar. Uh, let's see. Late medieval England, average life expectancy from birth only 30 years old. If you made it to 21, uh, life expectancy was an additional 43 years, so a total average of 64, not bad. Early modern England, only 33 to 40. 1900, the world average life expectancy from birth was only 31 years old. 1950, world average 48. 2010, world average 67.2. But to get back to what I was saying, I think even in the ancient world, in many cultures, the idea of men marrying preteens would have been considered uh, rather unseemly, to say the least. And I'm just looking. Uh, apparently, in ancient Rome, uh, the average age of marriage or when a girl was seen as being ready for marriage was roughly around 12 or 14, which is still shocking by our modern standards, uh, but I guess somewhat better than uh, what we see with Muhammad and Aisha. Let's see, I'm looking at what the standard was in ancient Greece. Uh, many women were married by the age of 14 or 16, while men commonly married around the age of 30. Wow, um, quite a disparity. See, I'm looking at what the standard was in the ancient Jewish world. Uh, minimum age for marriage under Jewish law was 13 for boys, 12 for girls. I think I remember uh, when I was growing up hearing uh, on documentaries and so forth, scholars kind of estimating that Mary, if she was indeed a real person, that she probably would have been around 13 or 14 when she married. Uh, I'm, of course, referring to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So you can see, looking at other standards in the ancient world, where usually, it, I mean, it's, it's as shocking as 12 sounds. It's usually in between like 12 and 14. Aisha's marriage consummated around nine, supposedly, according to um, the popular account. So, yeah, just uh, disturbing. And this one I got from, uh, I remember a long time ago, it was a couple of years back, maybe I did a story on a pamphlet which ISIS had released regarding the treatment of slaves. And at least some of their prescriptions or regulations were taken directly from the Quran and uh, perhaps other official or respected Islamic textual sources, such as the Hadith as well. Uh, but here's one that's taken directly from the Quran, and this is right from ISIS's uh, pamphlet. Question four, is it permissible to have intercourse with a female captive? It is permissible to have sexual intercourse with the female captive. Allah the Almighty said, successful are the believers who guard their chastity, except from their wives or the captives and slaves that their right hands possess, for then they are free from blame. Quran looks like Surah 23 verses or ayats 5 through 6.
so you can see, you can try to paint a pretty picture of Muhammad. And like I said, it might be a mixed bag. I think he actually did have some progressive ideas regarding the treatment of women, but at the same time still allowed slavery, or if not him himself, his holy book, which was supposedly recited to him by the angel Gabriel, uh, yes, sarcasm intended, uh, allows for the sexual use of female slaves, etc., So this cat, Jim Garrison, or whatever his name is, okay, uh, seems to really be trying to sugarcoat Muhammad. Sugarcoated Muhammad. Mm. But I think I'm going to read a little bit from the article, and I'll do my best to try to remain objective and take a column-like-I-see-him approach as I take on this guy's arguments and talking points. Okay, yeah, so I was right. The guy's name is Jim Garrison, and don't worry, I won't do another South Park joke. So here we go. The Prophet Muhammad would be appalled by how current Islamic fundamentalists are treating women under their control. This suppression is done in the name of Islamic law known as Sharia, but the current suppression of women is shaped by, and here, um, okay, only uh, I think two or three senses in, we already got a typo, but the current suppression of women is shaped by cultural and history. I think he means culture and history. I screw up a lot, so I'm not going to be too hard on him for that one. But I have to admit, I do feel a little bit of schadenfreude. Uh, (laughs) It has little basis in the Quran, and it is certainly not consistent with anything we know about what Muhammad taught or how he treated women. So already, I think that's intellectually dishonest. He says it has little basis in the Quran, and it is certainly not consistent with anything we know about what Muhammad taught or how he treated women. Um, So as I just mentioned, the Quran itself mentions the sexual use of female captives or slaves. So, and I think that's, there's a lot of vile things about the way women are treated in certain um, Muslim cultures, uh, from having acid thrown in their faces, being stoned, uh, honor killings, etc. But we know that Terrorist groups like Boko Haram and uh, the Islamic State both engage in the keeping of sex slaves. And as I just pointed out, you know, straight from the Quran. And also the Quran speaks about how if your wife gets a a little out of line, maybe you try to be nice at first, but if that doesn't work, strike her. So already intellectually dishonest. Out of all the founders of the great religions, Buddhism, Christianity, Confucianism, Islam, and Judaism, Muhammad was easily the most radical and empowering in his treatment of women. Arguably, he was history's first feminist. And if I can digress for a moment, hey, it's my podcast, why not? Uh, here's an article from 2015 uh, from The Guardian in the uh, science, uh, specifically anthropology section. I didn't know the Guardian had an anthropology section. Uh, Early men and women were equal, say scientists. Our prehistoric forebears are often portrayed as spare-wielding savages, but the earliest human societies are likely to have been founded on enlightened egalitarian principles, according to scientists. A study has shown that in contemporary hunter-gatherer tribes, men and women tend to have equal influence on where their group lives and who they live with. The findings challenge the idea that sexual equality is a recent invention suggesting that has been the norm for humans for most of our evolutionary history. Mark Dibble, or Dibble, an anthropologist who led the study at University College London, said, There is still this wider perception that hunter-gatherers are more macho or male-dominated, 
We'd argue that was only with the emergence of agriculture when people could start to accumulate resources that inequality emerged. Dibble says the latest fi- or Dibble suggest latest findings suggest that equality between the sexes may have been a survival advantage and played an important role in shaping human society and evolution. Sexual equality is one of an important suite of changes to social organization, including things like pair bonding, our big social brains, and language. That distinguishes humans, he said. It's an important one that hasn't really been highlighted before. So according to at least this one study being mentioned here, equal treatment of women can literally be traced back, possibly, arguably, to prehistory, a long-ass time before um, the advent of Islam. And that's kind of in keeping what I've heard about ancient, uh, you know, pre-agricultural revolution, matriarchal societies, etc. And that kind of reminds me of the societal structure of bonobos, too. And bonobos are those more peaceful kind of sex-obsessed, nothing wrong with that, relatives, diminutive relatives, they're smaller in stature, of chimpanzees and thusly close relatives of ourselves as well. I mean, there had to have been people before Muhammad who suggested some kind of egalitarian attitude. I don't know if this guy's just pulling this out of his you-know-where because he wants to uh, paint Muhammad in this positive light or what. And actually, if we jump up from prehistory to ancient Egypt, uh, here's a uh, paper from Cornell Library uh, at uh, library.cornell.edu. The status of women in Egyptian society. An exception to most other ancient societies, Egyptian women achieved parity with Egyptian men. They enjoyed the same legal and economic rights, at least in theory, and this concept can be found in Egyptian art and contemporary manuscripts. The disparities between people's legal rights were based on differences in social class and not on gender. Legal and economic rights were afforded to both men and women. It goes on, it is interesting that when the Greeks conquered Egypt in 332 BCE, Egyptian women were allowed more rights and privileges than Greek women who were forced to live under the less equal Greek system. So, I mean, prehistory and ancient Egypt, there's at least two examples predating Muhammad of parity between the genders or sexes. I'll continue with the article. Just a little reminder, because I digress to reiterate, he ends by talking about Muhammad was easily the most radical and empowering in his treatment of women. Uh, History's first feminist. This is of critical importance because if there is one single thing that Arabs and Muslims could do to reform and revitalize their crisis-ridden cultures, it would be to liberate their women and provide them with the full rights women are enjoying in more and more countries around the world. Women's equality is key to a real Arab spring. And I can't really argue with that paragraph, at least. Uh, And he's not the first to say that. Other people have said, if you really want to change uh, these kind of backwards Islamic cultures where women are still being uh, oppressed, etc., and this might be wishful thinking... But if you can, ideally, you'd want to find a way to empower the women in those oppressive societies. And uh, you'd probably start to see some progress. But that, of course, is much easier said than done. How do you go about convincing the men in these oppressive cultures to not necessarily hand over the reins completely to women, but at least begin to allow women some degree of parity? I'm sure there's some good men in these cultures who would want to see the empowerment of women, but I'm sure there's many 
who don't and who enjoy the status quo, including probably many of the mullahs and leaders, etc. And this guy tries to say it's history and culture that leads to these uh, oppressive attitudes towards women. And I've heard it argued a lot that there might be certain negative traditions or practices that we think of as Islamic that may be cultural, that may be pre-Islamic technically, but come on, you can't give Islam a free pass. Is it really pure coincidence that we see in many Islamic cultures the oppression of women and we can find verses similar to those that I read earlier in Islamic holy books, including the Quran. Uh, my guess is, come on, man. It's a little more than coincidence. Uh, religion plays at least <laughs> a part in all this. Uh, but I'll continue. Among the founders of the great religions, Confucius barely mentioned women at all and assumed in all his teachings that they were subordinate to men within a patriarchal order. Buddha taught that women could become enlightened, but had to be pressured three times before allowing women to become nuns, and then only on the condition, as he put it, that the highest nun would be lower than the lowest monk. In the gospel accounts, Jesus did not explicitly comment on the status of women, although he did associate with women of ill repute and with non-Jewish women. Moses was thoroughly patriarchal, and there is virtually nothing in the Torah that indicates specific concern about women's rights. So I won't argue with him about Moses or the Gospels. And even though I'm an atheist, I've had a long-standing fascination or interest with Eastern religion and philosophy. But despite that, I don't know as much about Confucianism as I would like. But I did study Buddhism quite a bit. And uh, like I said, despite being an atheist, I, to this day, I think I incorporate a lot of the key tenets of Buddhism into my life, like uh, trying to maintain a certain level of equanimity or detachment, not letting myself be ruled by my emotions, uh, trying to have compassion for other living beings. But to be honest, I never really sat down and thought about the status of women in Buddhism. And it's probably because when I was reading books like the Dhammapada or the Diamond Sutra, I don't remember the status of women coming up that often. It's probably because the emphasis was always so heavily placed on enlightenment. But the idea that the highest nun might be considered lower than the lowest monk, that doesn't honestly surprise me that much, because I think, unfortunately, sadly, in many ancient cultures, and probably many uh, modern cultures around the world too, unfortunately, um, women have been looked at as being inferior to men. And it wouldn't surprise me that even in an enlightened system like Buddhism, we would still find some vestiges of that. But I think the fact that the Buddha, the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, um, thought that women could become enlightened, I think to me that says a lot because enlightenment is the ultimate goal. That is it. To free oneself from samsara, the endless cycle of birth and death. At least that's how it goes within Buddhist belief. But continues, Muhammad was fundamentally different. He both explicitly taught the radical equality of women and men as a fundamental tenet of true spirituality, and he took numerous concrete measures to profoundly improve the status and role of women in Arabia during his own lifetime. Muhammad was sensitized to the plight of women because he was born poor and orphaned at a very early age. He was also illiterate. He knew, as few did, 
what poverty and social exclusion meant. Confucius was born into the gentry scholar class of ancient China. Buddha was born a wealthy prince in Nepal. Jesus was born the son of a carpenter with royal lineage and within a tightly knit Jewish community in Palestine. Moses was born into a Hebrew family and raised in the palace of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Muhammad had none of these advantages. So I've noticed uh, you know, my, my bullshit detector went off a bit here too. You could argue that if Moses, <laughs> I mean, there's so many reasons to dispute the historicity of the Exodus narrative. Um, but let's say, for the sake of argument, let's say Moses was real and that he actually grew up in the palace of an Egyptian pharaoh. As I was just mentioning, there was a relative parity between men and women in ancient Egypt in that differences were based more on class than gender. So you can make the argument that Moses would have learned something about equality Well, he's in Egypt, perhaps at least the quality of the sexes. And he talks about Jesus was born the son of a carpenter with royal lineage. So I think the royal lineage bit is a stretch. This guy, man, he is hungry. He really wants to make Muhammad stand out from these other guys. I think the claim of Jesus having royal lineage is, is probably a device, a literary device, utilized by the gospel writers to kind of legitimize or reinforce the idea that Jesus is worthy of being the Messiah. And let's say you could trace Jesus's roots. And I think the Bible does, the gospels do uh, include a couple of different versions of the genealogy of Jesus. Let's say you could trace Jesus's genealogy all the way back to David. And let's not get into the historicity of David well, maybe let's get into it a little. I think I read that there was a historical king of Damascus that claimed victory over an enemy king or kings. And I think it's pronounced Steely, S-T-E-L-E, usually like a stone with an engraving in it that may make mention of the house of David. So I think you know, David might have been a historical figure, maybe, maybe not. Uh, I'm willing to concede that he may very well have been. But even if we could trace Jesus' lineage back to David, that doesn't change the fact that Jesus, if he's historically existed, is basically described in the Gospels as a humble carpenter. Or I believe the Greek word is tecton, and depending on the time of its use, could mean uh, a woodworker or a stoneworker. Um, so even if he did arguably have royal blood. He was living probably like a peasant. I think like Dominic Crossan has talked about. We tend to think of carpenters in our modern age as being people who make a fairly good living. Well, even though I work for my family's carpentry business, the making a good living thing doesn't necessarily apply to me. But I'll try uh, to resist the temptation to, to go on a digression. Um, but in the time of Jesus, a manual laborer, even a skilled carpenter would have been pretty low on the social ladder. So trying to say that Jesus was kind of too hoity-toity to understand the plight of women because he had royal blood, uh, I think that's quite a stretch. 
Sebel continued, During 7th century Arabia, female infanticide was commonplace. Muhammad abolished it. A saying in the Hadith, the collection of sayings of Muhammad, records that Muhammad said that the birth of a girl was a blessing. Women in Arabia at the time were essentially considered property and had absolutely no civil rights. Muhammad gave them the rights to own property, and they were extended very important marital and inheritance rights. And I think that is true. Muhammad did supposedly implement some rather progressive policies regarding the right of women to own property and inherit wealth. Um, but once again, it goes back to my point, not to sound like a broken record. Yeah, he may have done some good things, but that doesn't erase all the stuff about slavery and concubinage and uh, being able to use female slaves for sex or being able to strike your wife, etc., Prior to Muhammad, the dowry paid by a man for his bride was given to her father as part of the contract between two men. Women had no say in the matter. Muhammad declared that women needed to assent to the marriage and that the dowry should go to the bride, not the father. Furthermore, she could keep the dowry even after marriage. The wife did not have to use the dowry for family expenses. That was the responsibility of the man. Women were also given the right to divorce their husbands, something unprecedented at the time. In a divorce, the woman was empowered to take the dowry with her. So, I mean, yeah, once again, this is all good stuff. And I would even argue that if you could get men in the Muslim world to follow this more positive aspect of Muhammad's example, I would be all for it. I, I am all for it. But how do you untangle this good stuff from all the really bad negative stuff uh, that we find in the Quran and, and the Hadith, which people use to subjugate and oppress women in the Muslim world? So I don't know. I mean, it seems a little intellectually dishonest to me. Why doesn't he bring up the negative role that religion plays? in all this too. Maybe he thinks that others have already spoken <laughs> enough about that. You know, I mean, this guy obviously sounds like he's uh, very sympathetic towards Islam, but I don't know. I just think it's intellectually honest to at least try to present a, a well-rounded and complete view, you know, not just to conveniently excise the negative role religion plays in the oppression of women and sugarcoat Muhammad to high heaven, you know? But, uh, before editing, I'm at like the 40-minute mark here. I'll try to quickly do that other story I promised. This one's by uh, Hemet Maida, the uh, friendly atheist. It's dated October 24th. Texas House candidate, don't vote for my opponent because she's a quote-unquote self-proclaimed atheist. Elizabeth Tarrant, or Tarrant, is a Democrat running for the Texas House from District 97 against incumbent Republican Craig Goldman. This is a really red district. Goldman won 82% of the votes in 2014, albeit without a Democrat in the race. But he's taking no chances this time around. In a letter sent out by his campaign, Goldman asked voters to support him because Tarrant, or Tarrant is a self-proclaimed atheist who does not have the values you want to represent you in Austin. And here's a quote from the, uh, from the letter or fly or whatever the hell it is. I am asking for your support this November to send me back to Austin and continue to represent you and your values. My Democrat opponent is a self-proclaimed atheist. This is who the Democrat Party is backing as their nominee. And I am certain my opponent, and, and I don't know if this typo is uh, Hemant Maida's or 
if this is uh, from the original copy. No, uh, Hemet Meta or whoever does his uh, copy editing or whatever screwed up. Um, the typo isn't in the original. Uh, Hemet Meta has it as, this is who the Democrat Party is backing as their nominee, and I am certain my opponent does not have does the values you want to represent you in Austin. It should, of course, be, and I am certain my opponent does not have the values you want to represent you in Austin. And uh, Meta continues, he doesn't explain what Tarant's awful heathenistic values are, but she supports women's rights, church-slash-state separation, and religious freedom. Apparently, following the Constitution is antithetical to everything Goldman stands for. In case you're wondering, Tarant, or Tarrant, uh, I'm sorry if I'm butchering her name, is indeed an atheist. She began a secular student alliance group at Tarleton, or Tarleton, uh, man, am I butchering stuff tonight. Probably doesn't help that I'm drinking. Tarleton State University when she was a student there and has been active with the Metroplex Atheists. Metroplex? Metroplex either sounds like a fitness supplement, like some kind of powdered protein drink, or maybe what was that guy from, uh, remember the old Super Friends cartoon? Was it Mr. Mixoplick or something? But anyway, she even protested at a local courthouse when officials put up an quote-unquote in God we trust sign inside and outside the building. But she hasn't run for office as an atheist. She hasn't used her campaign's website or social media to advocate atheism. Goldman's team must have researched her personal social media to discover her beliefs, and they're now trying to use it against her, hoping that the stigma of being an atheist in Texas is enough to turn voters away from her. Yeah, so I think not only do I find it personally offensive that atheists are always being characterized as being immoral, because I think there's that flawed belief that if you don't believe in God... Or, or and or an afterlife or adhere to some man-made religion that basically means that you have no moral framework or groundwork to stand on which i think is ridiculous because as i've said many times before i think our morality is at least partly evolutionarily wired within us i think we're partly wired for tribalism and violence in group l group stuff and we're also partly wired for altruism compassion group solidarity etc and not to climb up on my moral soapbox but i think it's our job in a manner of speaking to kind of nurture those figurative better angels of our being and let's not forget all the evil that's been done in the name of religion over the centuries and that's still being done in the name of religion Everything from acts of terror being committed by Islamic extremists to parents choosing prayer over life-saving medicine. And uh, religion doesn't necessarily seem to be any guarantee or indicator of good moral character. Think of things like the Catholic Church's covering up of the systemic sexual abuse of children, all those holier-than-thou televangelists and big-name preachers who end up mired in sex scandals, etc., etc. Where there's many... Many uh, godless humanists out there are people who don't even necessarily identify as humanists but don't believe in a higher power who are still or, or, you know, who still behave in a very moral way and have a strong moral compass. And I think sometimes it's partially for moral reasons that many of us veer away from religion because we're offended by the hypocrisy, etc. And, and we see the man-made nature of it. And we don't want to lie to ourselves and others by continuing to embrace a farce. But I think so, even though this is offensive in that sense, it's also offensive because 
as Americans, we're supposed to cherish the separation of church and state. And this guy is using the belief or lack thereof of his opponent in an attempt to smear her. So reprehensible stuff in general, I think. But I guess I'll leave it there. And um, once again, I'd like to give a shout out to Voice of Doom. And they told me that you, I believe you can find the new album, Screams in Space, on uh, Bandcamp, Amazon, iTunes, some other places too, I think. And you can also find out more about them by going to Peric Victory Recordings, I believe it is. Yep, it's PericVictoryRecordings.com. I'd also like to give a shout out to people who've been active on the Weekend Out Facebook page. I don't know if they've officially liked the page and maybe uh, it's been so long ago. Who knows? I might have even already given them a shout out in the past. But just in case, I, I don't like the idea of uh, not giving credit where credit is due or, you know, not thanking people for taking the time to interact with me on the uh, Weekend Out Facebook page. So Liz Marie M. Colazzo, hopefully you don't mind me reading your name on the air. Tony DeBono, I think I, I gave a shout out to Lara Velez a couple of episodes back, I think. Kelly Dean Wiggs, uh, did I say Jody Mack? Jody Mack. And of course, there's my old friends Will Nist and uh, Russ Ray. Did I mention Evan McKee already? Uh, never hurts to thank someone twice. And also, uh, of course, the, the guys in Voice of Doom who I interact with regularly on the uh, Weekend Out Facebook page. So, uh, yeah, if you guys want to, you can also like the Weekend Out Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, at The Weekend Out. Uh, please check out the YouTube channel. And while you're there, please like, comment, and subscribe. Hopefully that'll help the show get uh, noticed a little more. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can use the PayPal widget, the bottom of the Podbean page. There's the uh, famous alliteration. Hopefully the PayPal widget is still there. I don't think it's been used in quite a while. Or you can take the more popular route and go to the Weekend Out slash Patreon.com and pledge as little as 99 cents a month to help the show out. And, uh, okay. So, there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next week, and as I promised, here's another song from Voice of Doom off their new album, Screams in Space. And I'll actually, what the hell, I'll play the title track. Here it is, Screams in Space. <laughs>